The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Chapter 49. Burn Hot, Fast, and Intense. Miss McMillan, may it please the court, your honor. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, good afternoon. You know I intended to start my presentation this afternoon by thanking you, and I think maybe I really should apologize. I know this has been a long day for you, and I have been patiently waiting to get my turn at bat, so if you could be patient just a little longer. This will be over this afternoon. You know I started this trial when I first spoke to you in my opening by thanking you for what I knew would be a real commitment to listen to all the evidence in this case. Not just evidence of one side or the other, but everyone's. And your attention in this case has far exceeded my expectations. You know, many people are called to serve on juries, such as you are all doing, but few people are called to do what you have done in this case. And you are unique. Few people are asked to give up almost an entire month of their lives with their family, work, and community to see that our justice system really works as it should. And you 16 people did exactly that. I told you in the beginning that anyone can be charged with a crime. And the only way to combat that charge is to ask reasonable, committed people like yourselves to come together, listen to the evidence, follow the law, and finally make a considered judgment. I am sure that you already agree, as I suggested in the beginning, that this process is often tedious. You had days and days of listening to testimony, sometimes simply waiting when other things had to be done, and sometimes this process is even painful for you, and for that, we are all sorry. You know that your most difficult task, though, yet remains, and you have listened to the evidence. You will soon be instructed on the law, and finally, it will be your turn to judge, and that is not an easy task. Because I think from birth, most of us are taught not to judge our fellow human beings. And yet that's what you will soon be asked to do. We appreciate and thank you so much for the seriousness and the attention with which you start this task. This is my only opportunity to speak with you about what I think the evidence has proved, and more importantly, failed to prove over the last several weeks. First, let me say this, that your recollection of the testimony and the evidence in this case is the best. That has been your sole jobs. So if I say something or the prosecution argues a fact and you have a different memory of it, please trust your own memories because they are the best. While your burden is a heavy one in this case, 
Don't forget that the reason that our system asks 12 people to come together from different walks of life to act as jurors in cases like this is because we want you to bring common sense in your own life's experiences to this job. If we believe that professionals or experts could better make judgments like this, we would train professional jurors. But again, we are looking for the common sense and everyday experiences of ordinary citizens to make these kind of judgments. You know the state spent days in their case proving to you that two people died. We acknowledge that from the beginning. And no one, no one, ladies and gentlemen, disagrees that these were two tragic deaths. But that is not the issue in this case. The issue is how did these people die, and who, if we can tell, is responsible. We told you from day one that Donald Bull did not commit these crimes. And we told you that what you would hear from the state was a sterile, contrived theory that was made up of withholding information, pushing aside facts and testimony to create a case against Donald Bull. And that, ladies and gentlemen, I believe is just what you got. How many times in this case did you hear that witnesses were asked to change their statements? Or did, in fact, change their statements a year to three years after this initial fire? You know the state put on their fire investigators and other people who were at the fire scene to tell you what happened. And then the state kept those same witnesses and people from telling you the whole story. And it was only when we had our chance, our turn, even though we had no burden to prove anything to you, that you finally began to learn all the facts about this case. To learn the whole truth about this fire. You know now, even though the state wanted to deny it, in the beginning, investigators and medical personnel believed that this was just a tragic apartment fire. The state's own pathologist, Dr. Murphy, confirmed this when he said that he did the autopsies initially, and that was his initial conclusion. Those bodies were released by Springfield Memorial Medical Center to the funeral home in Canton, and then those bodies had to be brought back two days after the fire for a second review by a pathologist. How do you really believe if medical personnel and law enforcement personnel in this case had instantly believed foul play was involved, they would have permitted that to happen? Do you believe that they would have forced themselves, as they had to in this case, to march before you and parade before you, a half dozen witnesses from the funeral home, to testify that those bodies were never contaminated or interfered with while they were at the funeral home those two days? Ladies and gentlemen, this is not how a murder investigation is run. But let's look at the real heart of this case and see if it fits what I have been trying to say through the cross-examination and putting on witnesses in the last several weeks. Do you remember what I told you in my opening statement? How the state's timeline and what occurred at the time of the fire simply didn't fit with the theory that Donald Bull committed these crimes? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I believe that's exactly the evidence that you heard in this case. And let's take a closer, careful look at that timeline. What do we know about the timeline of this fire? Well, as I recall, we know these things. Number one, we know that Miss Newcomb's cleaning lady, a woman by the name of Lucinda Mouse, came to the apartment building that morning at approximately 8.15 a.m. That was January 13, 1993. And if you recall, she said that when she arrived at the building, she really liked this building and always took an opportunity to look at it. And she looked at the building and she saw nothing unusual about it. No fire, no smoke, no one around the building that didn't appear to belong there. Then we knew that she testified that shortly after she went into the apartment to begin her job of cleaning, 
and she came back outside again, and this time she was bringing the trash out. And so sometime after 8.15, 8.30, somewhere in the vicinity, she comes back outside, and again, she says she looks at the building. She sees no fire. She sees no smoke. She sees nothing amiss with the building, and she sees no one out of place in and around the building. And we also know from Miss Naus that after cleaning the apartment, she got ready to leave. And as she left the apartment, it was approximately 9.15 to 9.20, is what I recall her testimony being. And at that time again, she looked at the building, and she saw nothing wrong. No fire, no smoke, no evidence of anything amiss. But she did see one other thing. She saw David Haynes arrive at the apartment building at that time. Now we also know that David Haynes, after arriving at the apartment building, did something too. He called an employee at the National Bank of Canton, a lady by the name of Hazel Brown. And Miss Brown testified to you here, and according to her testimony, she says that at approximately 9 to 9, 10 a.m., that morning David Haynes called her, supposedly from Miss Pauline Newcomb's apartment, but we don't know that for sure. What we also know for sure is that at approximately 9.30 to 9.31, David Haynes called the police department, not the fire department, the police department. And we also know from the testimony of Mr. Max Scott, again, another employee of the National Bank at Canton, that he says he called the Tompkins apartment somewhere around 9.27 that morning. And then he went to the apartment sometime after that. Now during all this time, up through 9.30, 9.31 on the morning of January 13th, no one has reported seeing a fire, smoke, or anything amiss in that building. We also know, depending on which of the state's witnesses' time you believe, and it is just a couple of minutes variation, that the fire was discovered sometime between 9.36 and 9.38 a.m. And that is the testimony that comes from the police officer who arrives at the scene, Marty Brown. And he is the first person to indicate that there is a fire at that building. And he sees that, again, 9.36 to 9.38. So this is the timeline, folks. 8.15, no smoke or fire. Around 8.30, no smoke or fire. No one around the building that doesn't belong there. 9.15 to 9.20, Mr. Haynes arrives. Miss Naus is leaving. No smoke or fire in or around the building. And at 9.38, when Officer Brown arrives on the scene, he first sees smoke and fire. Now we also know something else. We know this from the testimony of Ted Anderson. You remember Ted Anderson? He is the investigator for the state fire marshal's office who investigated this fire. And this is the one fact in his testimony that doesn't change from the time he testified on Monday or Tuesday for the state. And when he testified for us on Thursday, And that is, he says, at the time that this fire was discovered, it had been burning somewhere between 2 and 20 minutes. So ladies and gentlemen, if we go back in time, we know the fire was discovered at 9.38, 9.36. Then that means that the earliest time this fire could have been started, according to the fire investigator, is between 9.16 and 9.18 that morning. And the very latest that the fire could have started is somewhere between 9.34 and 9.36. And who, ladies and gentlemen, is on the scene at the time that this fire starts? David Haynes. And what do we know that Mr. Haynes did? Well, we know a few things for sure. We know he broke the glass in the front door. Glass that fire investigator Stanko and Anderson both agree was broken before the fire started, or in the early stages of the fire. And why do they say that? Why do they know that? Why do they draw that conclusion? Well, two reasons. 
because there is no crazing of the glass. And there is no burnt-on heavy film of smoke that all fire investigators would agree would have been there had the fire been blazing before the glass was broken. Now you remember that Investigator Stanko, I think Mr. Stone, showed you some books. Pictures there. Didn't talk in his testimony to the state about any of this crazed glass, or glass that was broken prior to the fire starting. That, ladies and gentlemen, you only heard and you only got on cross-examination from us. We also know some other things that David Haynes did that morning. We know that he pulled an air conditioner out of the kitchen window. We also know that he went around to the north side of the building, of course. And he broke out windows in the back bedroom, and he broke the glass in the front door of this apartment. And what would all of those activities do? Well, every one of them would do this. What do you need for a fire? Fuel. Oxygen. Well, it would give that fire plenty of air to burn. Burn hot, fast, and intense. We also know that he never called the fire department, and we know that when the firemen arrived, he diverted them to the back of the building, back by the bedroom windows. And there we heard Fireman Stenko testify that he and other firemen attempted to get in those back bedroom windows, and in fact did, and they spent precious, valuable time to get in those windows, to save no one, even though Mr. Haynes stated that he knew that Donna Tompkins slept on a pull-out bed in the front of the apartment. What don't we know about David Haynes' role in this case? Well, if we believe what Mr. Haynes tells us, then we believe that we don't know anything about his relationship with Donna Tompkins. Because what does he tell us? Well, when he testifies for the state, he tells them that he was very upset about this fire, that Donna and Justine Tompkins were good friends of his, that he was broken up. I think he was even a bit weepy on the stand about this fire and their deaths. But when I question him in our case, what does he tell me in my first question to him about his relationship with Donna Tompkins? Well, he says they aren't close friends. They are merely work associates. But you saw, ladies and gentlemen, that when he was finally confronted with the statements he made to the police, he admitted some things. And what he admitted is that Donna and Justine were good friends of his. That he, in fact, had dated Donna Tompkins for some period of time. In fact, he tells you that on the Friday before Donna Tompkins' death at work, Donna Tompkins comes up to him, puts her arms around him, gives him a hug, and tells him she loves him. And why? Because he answered a simple tax question for her that he says she could have found the answer to herself? Now, ladies and gentlemen, I am going to ask all of you to put that common sense into play. When is the last time that a casual acquaintance at work came up to you, put their arms around you, gave you a hug, told you that they loved you because you answered a simple question for them that they could have found themselves. You know David Haynes, with much prodding and refreshing of his memory with police reports of what he told people before, finally admits that his wife was jealous of Donald Tompkins. And there are some other things that we don't know about David Haynes' activities on January 13, 1993. We don't know for sure whether he went into that apartment, as he claims, after he broke that glass and opened the door. Because initially he tells firefighters on the 13th, and this is just hours after the fire happens, that he breaks the glass in the door, walks two steps into the apartment, sees no fire right beside him in an area where you are going to look at the picture, 
and see there is extremely heavy fire damage. One of these areas that firefighters and investigators say was an initial origin point of the fire, but he doesn't see that. All he sees is a glow across the room. He also tells investigators on the day of the fire that when he is at the door breaking the glass, he feels no heat, sees no smoke, no evidence of fire until he walks into the room and sees that orange glow across the room. Now on January 17th, four days after the fire, he has a conversation with Special Agent Kedzer of the Illinois State Police. And there are a number of interesting things that Mr. Haynes says on that particular day. Do you recall that he initially tells Agent Kedzer when Agent Kedzer says, tell me what happened in the fire, give me your description? Well, the first thing he says, he starts by saying the fire started on Tuesday night. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to deflect suspicion away from yourself, you don't want that fire starting at the very moment you're at the apartment. Mr. Haynes also at this time doesn't know another fact. He doesn't know from Ted Anderson yet that Anderson has already decided this fire had to start within 2 to 20 minutes before it was discovered at 9.36 or 9.38. And Mr. Haynes tries to help his case further when he's talking with Agent Kedzer by saying this. He says, first of all, that he made a call to Donna Tompkins' apartment at 9 a.m. on the 13th before he went down to the apartment building. And on this occasion now, four days after the fire, he says that the answering machine was very slow. The message was very slow. And so what that must have meant was that the apartment was already on fire and the machine was melting. Again, nice cover for him. Puts him away from the time that the fire starts. But you remember, he didn't tell investigators that was the occurrence on the day of the fire. This is a new thing he has come up with now. Ladies and gentlemen, he makes one more very interesting and strange statement to Agent Kedzer. He holds up his finger and he says, It was so hot when I opened that door. Now remember him, he tells them on the day of the fire, he doesn't feel any heat. But when I broke the glass and I reached in and unlocked that door, I burnt my fingertip off. I burnt my fingertip off. And Agent Kedzer said, I looked at his hand and I don't see anything. But not to fear, Mr. Haynes has an explanation from the stand on Thursday when I examined him for that. He says, well, he says, that was only something my wife and I could see. It wasn't really injured that bad. I didn't really burn my fingertip off. And only my wife and I could see it. We have special vision. Now, ladies and gentlemen, are these all the stories that Mr. Haynes tells? No. No, I am afraid not. Because four days after this conversation with Agent Kedzer, now eight days after the fire, he has another lengthy conversation with Ted Anderson of the State Fire Marshal's office and Canton Police Sergeant David Ayers. And at this time, Mr. Haynes tells Anderson and Ayers that again when he breaks that glass in the door and walks in, he sees no evidence of fire. He feels no heat, sees no smoke. He walks two steps into the room, still sees no fire right beside him at that doorway and only sees that orange glow across the room. And on this occasion, because it didn't work, you know, four days earlier with Agent Kedzer, he doesn't mention anything about its burnt fingertip. Now Mr. Anderson testifies to you, and finally Mr. Haynes admits this, that Anderson told him eight days after the fire that the story that Haynes was telling about walking into this apartment was absolutely impossible. That in fact, had Mr. Haynes done what he had claimed to have done, would have been overcome by the smoke in that apartment, or there would have been a backdraft, which would have blown him out of the room. And now David Haynes' back is against the wall. What is he going to say now? What is the explanation? 
So after being confronted with this by Investigator Anderson, he simply gives up and says, well, maybe I didn't walk into that room after all. And at that point, Investigator Anderson says to David Haynes, this was an intentionally set fire by the use of flammable liquids. And with that, Agent Anderson leaves the room, leaves Mr. Haynes alone with Sergeant Ayers. And David Haynes thinking, maybe another explanation will help me out in this case. Volunteers this information to Sergeant Ayers. Well, maybe when I called the apartment that morning at 9, I set off a booby trap. And if you don't believe that, then he tries this. Or maybe I kicked over a container of accelerant when I walked into the room. And investigators continue to meet with him over that evening after he has made his statements and indicate to him they don't believe his story. And what does Haynes say over and over again? I don't really, you don't really think I did this. You're just doing your job. Wishful thinking. Ladies and gentlemen, the state says that David Haynes is a great guy, a lawyer, a banker, went to school in the GI Bill, a family man. But do people come to you with tattoos on their forehead that say criminal? No. What happens is they get themselves into situations. Sometimes they panic, and they do terrible things, and then they have to try and cover it up. You know David Haynes admitted on the stand that he told his next-door neighbors, Carolyn and Clayton App, why someone put Don and Justine on the bed together. He said to hide the evidence. Then, of course, again in his usual manner, he wants to try to explain this statement away. And so he's good at these kind of explanations. You know he likes to talk. If you watch him testify, both on direct and then when we put him on in our case, he is a lawyer and he thinks lots of words will serve him better than a few. But this time fewer words might have served him better. How can we believe any statement that Mr. Haynes makes to us? You see, do you recall him up on the stand denying to you about a conversation he had with a man at the Kroger grocery store? A conversation in which he is to have said, I'm glad she is gone. I was having an affair with her. I know how the house burned, and I know who did it. You heard Michelle Jackson, the clerk at the Kroger grocery store, who said that she heard those words. And she also says that the only way that she knows David Haynes is he was a customer of hers at the Kroger grocery store. Although she identified him here in court on Thursday, seen him in the hall, seen him come in here to testify just earlier in the morning. You also heard her say exactly what words she overheard. And what is her reason to be here? None, other than she is a good citizen doing her job, telling what she heard, telling police what she knows. She didn't get any reward in this case, and her husband reported this information just as soon as she heard it and reported it to him. Now the fact that police didn't come out for several weeks and question her about it wasn't her fault. And again, ladies and gentlemen, when the police and prosecutors decide to change tracks and go after Donald Bull, instead of a well-known banker in this case, they go back to Michelle Jackson, back in April of 1994. A year after this fire, a year after her earlier statement, and they try to get her to say um, that maybe she heard those words out of context, or she didn't understand what Mr. Haynes was saying. And she said, well, maybe that is true. I don't know what his intention was. I can't read his mind, but I do know the exact words I heard. I'm glad she's gone. I was having an affair with her. I know exactly how the house burned, and I know who did it. 
And with all this, ladies and gentlemen, you're asked to believe David Haynes. What better cover-up to starting a fire and committing a murder than to be at that apartment feigning concern because now you have access? Now no one questions your comings and goings in broad daylight. Ladies and gentlemen, where is the state's evidence that Donald Bull was at this fire scene? If you believe that Donald Bull committed this murder and arson, then you have to speculate and then, beyond a reasonable doubt, believe that he was in that apartment again between 9.16am and 9.36am with David Haynes knocking on doors, breaking windows, opening doors, stepping into the apartment, and yet in broad daylight, with only one door which leads to the front of this apartment into the street. Exit out of that door, Donald Bull has to set that fire in that apartment during that time frame. Walk out of the front door in broad daylight with a can of accelerant in his hands, because no can is found inside the apartment. Walk away from that apartment, unseen by all the people that you have heard testify. See David Haynes and all his activities between 9.16 and 9.36 a.m. that morning. Reasonable doubt? This is just plain unbelievable. But I'm sure that the state will attempt to change and twist the evidence once again, pushing the evidence aside, and try to convince you that because that's what this case has been all about from day one. But you know, what the state and its witnesses have done here that is most disturbing and most compelling is seen in the testimony of Ted Anderson on Thursday afternoon. Ladies and gentlemen, even if I didn't know prior to his Thursday afternoon testimony that Mr. Anderson, after three years, three years after this fire, would change his entire theory of how this fire started, do you recall that last Monday or Tuesday when the state put Ted Anderson on the stand to testify what he said? Well, as I recall, he said this, fire at the Tompkins resident was a hot, fast fire, an intense hot fire. It started and burned in 2 to 20 minutes before discovered at 9.38. He also said there were two points of origin, the bed and an area by the front door, the door that Haynes supposedly walked into. And Ted Anderson also told you that the glass in the front door was broken before or near the time the fire started. And it had to be so because again, the glass wasn't crazed and there was no heavy smoked on film on that glass. Of course, when Ted Anderson testifies for the state, as you recall, he doesn't make much mention of Mr. Haynes and his investigation of Mr. Haynes shortly after this fire, and he neglects to tell you about all the inconsistencies he finds in what Mr. Haynes tells him and what Mr. Anderson, the trained professional, is actually seeing at that fire. You know, we knew that's how the state would put Mr. Haynes' testimony on, because it is how they put all their witnesses' testimony on. They attempted to hide David Haynes. They have consistently called witnesses to hide Mr. Haynes and his activities. Did you hear one time on last Monday or Tuesday, when Mr. Anderson testified for the state, these words when he talked about the fire origins and the glass evidence? That's what I believed then. In other words, as always taking it, an indication that he had a different theory now of how the fire started. I didn't hear on Monday or Tuesday when he testified for the state one time words to that effect. So ladies and gentlemen, we call Mr. Anderson back, as we said we would, so you could get the whole story of what happened in this fire. And you heard Mr. Anderson testify from a 31-page report that he had made shortly after he concluded this investigation of this fire back in January, February of 1993. 
and he told you each and every one of these inconsistencies of David Haynes' statements, and how what he saw at the fire scene simply wasn't consistent with what Haynes had told him. And he also told you how that after Haynes was confronted by him saying, you couldn't possibly have done what you indicated you did because otherwise you would have been overcome by smoke or blown out of the door by a backdraft. For the first time on Thursday afternoon while Mr. Stone is examining him in cross-examination by the state, I begin to hear Mr. Anderson say these words. Well, that's what I believed then. And I thought, what does this mean? I have never heard him say this before. And sadly, ladies and gentlemen, I found out. At the end, the very end of Mr. Anderson's testimony in this case, again an investigator for the Illinois State Fire Marshal's office, he says now, three years after he investigated this fire, that he has a new theory about how this fire started. He says instead of the fire being a hot, intense, fast fire, like he testifies about on Tuesday, that it is a smoldering fire, but the fire goes out, and when, on the bed, when Mr. Haynes opens the door, all of a sudden there is oxygen, and it is reignited, and it jumped over by the door later on after Mr. Haynes leaves. Ladies and gentlemen, can this possibly be a credible statement by Mr. Anderson? You see, three years ago he testifies he made 31 pages of reports about this fire investigation, and not once does he mention the smoldering fire theory. He also took the stand here on Monday or Tuesday and testified for the state, and not one time in that testimony did he say this was a smoldering fire that went out and was then reignited later on. Ladies and gentlemen, don't you believe if one of the major fire investigators in this case had believed that he made a mistake three years ago when he did this initial investigation, that he would have put together, after he had a 31-page report, a one-page report saying, you know, I found out some other information, and I made a mistake, and now this is what I think really happened in this fire. Don't you think we would have had at least one page of information on that? Don't you think that when he took the stand and testified in this case on direct examination for the state, we would have heard about that theory? Ladies and gentlemen, the state has become so worried about this case that Ted Anderson had to come up with a new theory of this fire, a theory that would protect Mr. Haynes. You know, you also heard in this fire testimony from Mr. Pat Burns, a longtime fire chief and fireman for the city of Chicago. Cook County Fire Department. And what does Mr. Burns tell you? I'm not going to go through every bit of his testimony with you, but this is basically what he says. He says, I know all these officers. I know the ATF guys. I took a long look at the reports that all of them had prepared, including Mr. Anderson and Mr. Stenko. And those guys did a fine job. And the conclusion they made in this case, in the beginning in those 31 pages of reports, they were dead on. That is exactly how that fire started. Now the only thing I heard him say different is he said, I don't believe there were two separate origins of fire. I believe it was basically one large origin of fire and that accelerant had been poured on the bed. It had been poured by the door. Whoever set that fire went out the door, tossed a match or whatever was used to light it there at the door and left. Because if they hadn't, that person would have been caught up in the fire. And if they lit a fire by the bed and had accelerant by the door, they would have been caught up in the middle of those two. I think that is the only thing he says different in this. But he again says because of what he saw, it was a hot, fast, and intensely burning fire. Do you recall how his testimony, the state attempted to disregard it, attempted to get Mr. Burns to say that actually, this could have been a smoldering fire, 
and that they question and they say, when Mr. Haynes pulled that air conditioner out of the window, out of the kitchen area, and that column of black smoke came out, wouldn't that indicate that that was a smoldering fire instead of a hot, intensely burning fire? And you heard Mr. Burns. He said, no, absolutely not, just the opposite. What he really says is that that is evidence. That smoke coming out of the window is evidence of open burning of an intensely hot, fast burning fire. Ladies and gentlemen, this testimony on Thursday afternoon by Mr. Anderson is the clearest example of what I have been telling you from the beginning in this case. That the state has had to manipulate their evidence to fit their theory of this case that Mr. Bull committed these crimes. Now after they have abandoned David Haynes as their key suspect, because after all, he is a banker and everyone's friend, they have repeatedly gone out to witnesses and tried to get them to change their statements some a year later, some three years later. And why do they do this? Well, they do it because they are desperate. They are desperate to convict Donald Bull. You know, we are supposed to be able to believe in the good guys, the police officers, fire investigators. We want to believe in them, and now they make it so impossible and they wonder why we all become cynical. The state doesn't want to focus on what happened at this fire scene because there is too many unanswered questions and there is no evidence to connect on a bowl to this scene. So how do they make their case? Well, after attempting to hide Mr. Haynes as a suspect, six months to a year later, they find some convicted felons, Chris Chester and Harold Crozer. And these two individuals now are supposed to make their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And what is reasonable about either Chester or Crozer? Do you recall that when Mr. Chester calls Sergeant Ayers before giving his statement to police, that he implies Donald Bull in these offenses, that the first question out of his mouth is, are you guys ready to go to the parole board for me? But the state would have you believe that no deals or promises or assistance were made to Mr. Chester. And yet, just a short time after he made the statements that the state needed in this case, felonies he had pending against him were dismissed. And at this time, a multiple-time convicted felon gets only a three-year sentence on one count of forgery. You know, ladies and gentlemen, if you're going to believe the word of a convicted felon, you must be able to connect those words to some piece of evidence that is irrefutable. Something that gives those words of that felon credibility. And ladies and gentlemen, what do we have that gives Chris Chester's statement credibility? What is it that says to you that even though he's a convicted felon, I guess, I can believe him? And let's look at the second felon they bring to you, Harold Crozer, another convicted felon, another person who is supposed to convince you beyond a reasonable doubt that Donald Bull committed these crimes. Well, Mr. Crozer testifies that he really doesn't know too much about this incident at all. In fact, at one point, if you recall, he tells police as part of this that Donald Bull tells him that Mr. Bull goes back to the fire scene shortly after the fire and the police run him off. Do you recall, ladies and gentlemen, close to a dozen auxiliary police officers being brought up here on the stand to testify to you, and each one of them saying from the time of this fire through January 16th, they carefully remained at the fire scene, observing it at all times. And no one other than authorized personnel came to the fire scene and ladies and gentlemen, do you think if one of those auxiliary officers had seen Donald Bull at the fire scene, as Mr. Crozier says he was, that they would have jumped at the chance to tell you about that? And what does Mr. Crozier get for his time and trouble? Well, this man who has a record that you could wallpaper your bathroom with, including obstructing justice, 
criminal drug conspiracy, armed violence, unlawful delivery of a controlled substance, this same person who has spent several times incarcerated in the Illinois Department of Corrections will, just two weeks after he gives his story to police, he has two felony aggravated battery charges dismissed, a DUI dismissed, and some other traffic matters. He pleads guilty to one simple misdemeanor and doesn't do a day in the penitentiary. Does that sound like a deal to you? Ladies and gentlemen, there has been a lot of talk about DNA evidence. And if you recall, the state doesn't like Dr. Ostrowski, do they? Well, well, maybe the reason they don't like him is because Mr. Metzger and Mr. Franks are just a little bit intimidated because Dr. Ostrowski is the person with the PhD in molecular and population genetics. I think he has a master's in one and a PhD in the other. And we know that those two areas of genetics are what make up DNA testing. Now, in this case, you heard a lot about DNA evidence, and it is interesting evidence. Do you remember I told you in my opening that after you heard about the DNA evidence, instead of believing that it was a 100% absolute, you might have some questions? Well, after I listened to all the testimony on both sides, that is certainly what I was left with. But I am not a scientist. You know, Mr. Metzger, who was the state's expert, and Dr. Ostrowski, who was our expert, agree that if you are going to do an appropriate DNA profile, you ought to run all the samples on the same gel, and that's something everybody agrees with. And the reason that you ought to do that is because they are going to run at the same speed. You're going to get an actual look to determine if you have an actual match. Now they want to tell you, well, the reason we didn't do it is because it was impossible in this case. We didn't have enough DNA, but they had a second swab, so that doesn't cut water here. You heard both experts also testify that DNA evidence isn't a fingerprint. It isn't an exact science. As Mr. Crozer, remember him, DNA expert to the stars, says, What is, is a probability. If it tells you anything, if there is even a match, it simply tells you that one out of so many people could possibly fit this profile. You also heard both of these experts testify about how the proper way is to do the testing, again, running all samples on this same gel. Also, doing a test for band shifting. And both Mr. Metzger and Dr. Ostrowski agree there is a test to do that. Now, Mr. Franks doesn't think there is one. But Dr. Ostrowski and Mr. Metzger both say that it can be done. And Dr. Ostrowski says labs all across the country do it. Mr. Metzger says the Illinois State Crime Lab doesn't do it that way. But you know, we can argue about the DNA evidence forever. And what does it really prove in this case? Ladies and gentlemen, you didn't hear one word of testimony from one expert that said that whatever the DNA evidence is, or whatever it means, whether you believe it or disbelieve it, not one of them indicated that the DNA evidence could prove anything in this case other than that Donald Bull and Donna Tompkins had sex. You already have a letter in evidence where Donald Bull says that he has sex with Donna Tompkins. The RFLP testing done in this case will not tell you when sex occurred between these two people. It won't tell you if sex was consensual or if it was forced. And it will not show you how Donna Tompkins died. The first day of this trial, I suggested to you that when all was said and done, the DNA evidence in this case wouldn't prove one thing, and I think on that score, I am right. You know, the state wants you to believe that there wasn't any relationship between Donna Tompkins and Donald Bull, because she was in an exclusive relationship with Rod Franciscovich. And ladies and gentlemen, that is what Mr. Franciscovich wants to believe too, but that simply isn't the way it was. 
Terry Haynes, the state's witness, testified to you that he was dating and sleeping with Donna Tompkins during the same time period that Rod Franciscovich was. And you also know from testimony of Iona Price that during this same time period, Donald Bull and Donna Tompkins were attracted to one another. And we also know that Donald Bull and Donna Tompkins knew one another. He sold her a couch. He had received a call from her around Christmas time at the place where he worked. Mike and Iona Price are mutual friends of both of these people, and they both had been at their house on at least one occasion. And Donald Bull had Donna Tompkins' unlisted telephone number in his wallet. But the state wants you to believe here that Donald Bull was a virtual stranger to Donna Tompkins. That she would never have voluntarily had contact with him. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, from the testimony in this case, that Donna Tompkins was in the habit of allowing men to come to her apartment late at night and spend the night, you also know that from the letter Donald Bull says he had sex with Donna Tompkins late Sunday night, early Monday morning, the same day she worked the Elks Christmas party, and I believe the testimony was she probably worked to approximately 12, 12.30 that night. You also know from testimony of the state that Donna had made plans for her daughter on that Sunday night to spend the night at the babysitter's house so she was free. She let Rod Franciscovich do the same thing on Monday night, but he claims that during sex with her he doesn't ejaculate so there is no evidence of his DNA present, nor would there be evidence. And you heard again, the DNA experts both testify, there wouldn't be evidence of anyone else's DNA if that person had used a condom, didn't ejaculate, or had oral sex. Ladies and gentlemen, the state has no evidence about who was in that apartment on January the 13th, 1993, at the start of this fire except for David Haynes. You can't prove how Donna Tompkins and Justine died. You heard testimony from two pathologists. Even the state's pathologist can only speculate as to the cause of death, and he is not a forensic pathologist. Dr. Murphy does agree his opinion is just speculation, based on no actual physical evidence found during the autopsy. And once again, there were some tests in that case at the autopsy that could have been performed that might have given us more information, but they weren't done. And ladies and gentlemen, with all of this testimony, what do you know beyond a reasonable doubt? Well, you know that David Haynes was the only person that the state can place at the fire scene at the time the fire started. You know that there are no conclusions supported by the evidence of the autopsy that state how these two individuals died. And in fact, you know that the state can't place Donald Bull at the fire scene. And yet you're asked, based on this information, to find my client guilty of these charges beyond a reasonable doubt. Ladies and gentlemen, in closing, do you recall the first day of this trial? And I think even here again today, that Mr. Danner told you that this case was just like a puzzle, and that he was going to put the pieces of this puzzle together for you one at a time, and you would have a clear picture of what occurred in this case, and you would be able to make a judgment beyond a reasonable doubt. And do you remember what I told you the first day? I said that sometimes when you have a puzzle, and you try to put it together, no matter how hard you try, it just doesn't fit. Well, let's take a look at this puzzle. Now, assuming that you believe that the state has put a few pieces together over here and you believe that the defense has put a few pieces together over here, what are you left with? You're left with a whole lot of puzzle pieces and you have got to try to fit them together so you can see an entire picture. And the first thing you have to do in this case is take a handful of those puzzle pieces 
and throw them away because you don't know how those people died. And no matter what you do in this case, you're never going to be able to answer that question. And the second thing you have to do is take some more puzzle pieces away and discard them because there is no evidence that Donald Bull was at this fire scene. And ladies and gentlemen, after you look at what is left and you take the remaining pieces that you have, I submit to you that you can sit here a day, a week, or a month, and not one of the 12 of you will ever be able to put this puzzle together. You will never be able to have a picture in your mind of what happened in this case. The puzzle will not fit. And that, my friends, that is reasonable doubt. Donald Bull did not commit these crimes. The state hasn't proved he committed these crimes. And you must, by the oath you took when this case started, find him not guilty. Thank you. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.